Well, good morning. It's great to be with you today. Um, before we get into Habakkuk this morning, and uh, I do believe providentially God has put us in the ba- book of Habakkuk for this season of life that we find ourselves, especially in, even in our nation. Um, I want to take a moment before we begin uh, to just have a time of prayer um, for the events that have happened yesterday in Pittsburgh, and then also throughout our week. Um, we've had a week of, 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 of pipe bombs and mass shooting, and um, I believe that uh, I believe we live in a, as far as my life, a time of incivility and hate. Um, that we must pray, we must pray for our land, and ask ourselves deep questions in our own hearts. Uh, <clears throat> we we have a sort of mentality in our time. If someone disagrees with me, off with their heads. And whether you believe it in your heart or you act upon it, it is kin to the Babylonians in the book of Habakkuk or just progressively to evil in this world. And so what I'd like us to do is pray. Pray for those um, families that lost 11 loved ones yesterday, six in the hospital. So if we will pray, and I'm just going to have kind of a moment of silence as we pray, and then I will pray for us collectively. So if you will, bow your heads and pray for those um, families, those who are in critical condition, and for our nation. Father, we pray this morning for the families of those who lost their loved ones at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. Lord, we pray that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, and that you would lead them and guide them through this time of grief and pain. Lord, for those that are in critical condition, we pray that your hand would rest on them. Lord, that you would hear, not just the prayers here, but all over churches this morning, praying the same, God. I believe also, Lord, the prayer that I think your saints are resounding. Lord, would you bring peace to our land? Lord, help us to treat each other with dignity and honor and respect as the image bearers of you. Help us to see humanity well. Lord, help us to see your love for us displayed on the cross well. Help it define all that we do and how we act. So Lord, we do pray that you would heal our land Heal the families hurting, heal those who are in critical condition, and help us. Help us to live with you as our Lord in the day and time we find ourselves. Lord, in your word it says, the righteous shall live by faith. Help us to live by faith. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the uh, just side notes, if you, in the attack on the the Jewish synagogue, and, and so the, the man who attacked is um, anti-Semitic at every level. Um, the Jewish people are the most per- persevering population that has ever been placed on the planet. If you want evidence for God, I present to you the Jewish people. Um, God has preserved them through some of the most horrific 
things historically. And I believe that one, there's no, there's, there's, uh, for us, um, we as a people, um, we ought to care for our Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, I believe as a people that we should care deeply um, about the broken things of this world. So it's peculiar we find ourselves in the book of Habakkuk today in the five woes. The five woes in which God is going to speak of is basically um, is basically nations and people and how they view people and how they interact and then behave amongst those people. Um, bottom line in our world, there are evil people, there always has been evil people, and there always will be evil people until Jesus returns. There are those in time and history that, and there will continue to be those whose only resolve is off with their heads. Anger in the heart and life, this is the end. But Albert Solzhenstein, he said this, he was uh, Uh, kind of against the Communist Party in Russia, and he wrote many works, and this is one of his quotes, he said. He said, The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So what I believe he meant by that is the line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. There's an understanding, and it's a very Christian thing to say, because there's an understanding that, that the goodness that any of us possess is only, only by the grace of God. The evil that each and every one of us are capable of is far greater than that which we even know. And as Christians, our very merit is not based on our good works, but it's based on the righteousness of a Savior who loved us so much that he would die for us. And that righteousness, theological word, was imputed, given to us. It is ours because of what he did for us. So again, Stolzen had it right. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And so I believe that the ultimate to answer all the ills of this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this passage, it has this, it's a fairly dark passage because it's five woes. And woe in Hebrew basically means uh, condemnation with impending death. So it's sort of stark and harsh. Anyway, like impending death is never something that's like, I'm just going to read a few verses on impending death for those that disobey God. It's for fun. Um, And so in this, there is these glimmers of hope. There's these glimmers that even in despair, there's hope. So before we read the text, I just want to read you these two verses. Verse 20, we'll start with the end. God says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Even in the injustice and the brokenness of our world, God is on his throne. Second, he says in verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. That there is coming a day when Jesus will return and restore all things back and his glory will fill the earth as the water covers the sea. Now to many, it is to their shame, and this is the reference before this, their shame is their wickedness and their evil deeds. But God's glory, no longer shame will fill this earth, but God's glory will fill this earth. The man in Pittsburgh, he is shamed in what he has done. And vengeance will always be God's, no man's. So, in this text, we can have hope, we can have humility. These things are found in God through his son, Jesus Christ. So a little explanation before we read it. One, God created us to live under his rule, under his reign, in perfect harmony with him. At the beginning of time, God set course in this world for us to live in his peace. 
But sin entered this world, and in sin entering this world came violence and injustice and pride and ego and man rising up against man and woman rising up against woman and and people rising up against people and hardship and pain and death and orphans and abortion and evil and wickedness. It came into this world. And God loved this world so much that he set a plan to restore everything back to himself. And that plan was to send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to be buried in the tomb, to rise from the dead, to be seated on high. And by the way, he did this. He is seated. He is alive. To restore all things back to himself. And in Ephesians 1, 9, it says that the plan of God, right, is to unite all things in him, meaning that God has a plan in this world. And what God is doing is he's restoring everything back to himself. So if you're a redeemed child of God, what God is wanting to use you to do is to be a restorer of the broken things of this world, first and foremost, humanity, back into relationship with God, but also the broken things in which, this, which our God despises, which is a result of the fall, to get our hands dirty into the mix and the mess of our world. God is clearly calling us into these things. And so the big idea of the text is this. The arrogant, the, ar- the arrogant, that's a new word. Um, the arrogant ultimately will fall under the weight of their sin, but the righteous will live by faithfulness to God. Say that again. The arrogant ultimately will fall under the weight of their sin. The righteous will live by faithfulness to God. So, if you will, let's read together Habakkuk 2, 6 through 20. Habakkuk 2, 6 through 20. There's a Bible in the seat ahead of you if you don't have it. Um, by the way, Habakkuk's a bit of a challenging book to find. It's a tiny little book at the end of the Old Testament. And so don't be ashamed to look at your table of contents. I'm just going to let you know sometimes the pastor's pages stick together. I look at the table of contents too. Don't ever be ashamed to look at the table of contents. Just find the book. Um, so back at 2, 6 through 20, it'll also be on the screens. Let's stand together in reverence and honor of reading the authoritative God of word, the, the word of God today. And pray for a pastor that his words will come into order today. Back at 2, 6 through 20. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loathes himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire? And nations weary themselves for nothing. For the Lord, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory, and violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities, and to all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when it is a maker, when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver 
and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Father, help us today to understand this, this passage. Lord, help us to understand who you are, that which you love, and that which you despise. Lord, help us to be people that come underneath your authority and help us to be people in which you define how we live, how we act, how we move, and how we go about the treatment of others. Help us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So in this passage, what we're going to see is, is the, the woes to those who practice, who practice injustice and oppression. So we're going to see the woes to those <clears throat> who practice injustice and oppression. Now, in this, just so we're kind of clear, the, the beginning verse says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say? And so what this is, is a, it's literally a song of condemnation. And so it's a song of, of, of God, a poem of God saying, this is how I am going to deal with the people. And so um, do, do be with those that don't honor me and love me. And so um, maybe say it like this, those who they have harmed. So in this text, what we're going to see is those who they have harmed, the Babylonians, they're going to rise back up. Um, they will come against Babylon with great force, meaning that no, no bad deed will go unpunished. Um, it is also true to say that anyone who practices these injustices will feel the weight of these woes. Now, a little bit of bad news today for you if you didn't know this. You're going to feel these woes in your life if you listen. You're, you're going to feel these woes unless you're a way better person than I know anyone in this room to be. And you may not feel them overtly in your own actions, but we might feel them in our indifference. We might feel some of these woes in our indifference of caring about those who have been marginalized and hurt in our society and world. I say that, and I can pretty clearly state that our Savior deeply cared for the marginalized, the hurting, and the dirty in this world. He cared about those in which no one else did. And these woes are going to come against the oppressor. And they are going to come kind of in backing up the oppressed. And so what we have in here is kind of this, this back and forth. There's a threat to the oppressor, right? And then there's a kind of hope for the oppressed. And it's going to go back and forth in each of the woes. But all of us in this room, at some point, as you hear this passage kind of expounded, I think we will feel it in our lives. And the question always is, what do we do when the God moves us, speaks into our lives? Hopefully, we turn in action. So, woes. Woes to those who practice injustice and oppression. So the first woe. Woe to the economic oppressor. Woe to the economic oppressor. So it says in verse 6, kind of B, the end of it, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. So what this is, is basically extortion. It forces or threats, it's a bully, right? It's saying, if you don't give me this, then I am going to give you this. If you don't do this, then I am going to harm you or hurt you. So think about it kind of like in a mafia sense, right? You walk up to a local grocery store and you say, hey, you're going to pay us 60% of what you take in. And if you don't pay us, we're going to beat up your kids. This is kind of the idea of this text. And this was the idea of Babylon and who they were and what they did, except a hundredfold more harsh and abusive than that. And so extortion, right? So he says, woe to him who, who heaps up what is not his own. So they're taking money that they haven't earned, that wasn't theirs. How long will you do this? Loads himself with pledges. So it's extortion and it's oppressive. The end result is systematic oppression and it is perpetual and it can go on for generations, up to four to five to six generations, even after it's concluded. This is historical. This is any society in any time. There is either entire societies built upon the oppression and extortion of people, or 
there's pockets of those who have been, been economically oppressed in any culture anywhere on the planet. It is a common way in which man takes advantage of man in order to prop himself up. So it continues, will not your debtors suddenly arise? So here's the, the criticism. Here's the, hey, they're not going to win, the, the oppressor. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. So what he says is, you can oppress economically, but the people will rise up against you. This, those whom you have harmed will bring harm on you. So economic oppressors work for their own good, resulting in the detriment of others. So again, so economic oppressors, they work for their own good, resulting in the detriment of others. They view people as machines. They cast people, and so they say this, I am here in the caste system, you are here, and so I can behave in this strata with a, a set of ethics here, and you can, you can survive in a set of ethics here, and they don't count the same. You are a machine, I am above you, I can treat you however I want to, and, we, and, and then they are held down so that their end right, might be reached, and their end might be reached is that they have a cheap labor force in an easy way to economically thrive. With me? All right. So that's as he says, woe to the economic oppressor. And if you think that there is not economic oppression in America, you're crazy. Second, I just called you crazy if you were thinking that. Sorry about that. Woe to the hoarder of wealth. Second woe. Woe to the hoarder of wealth. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. So simple of it is, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, gets evil gain for this house. Meaning that literally the oppression of people, the first woe and the second woe are tied together. And so you've oppressed people, you've held them down, you've gotten wealth for yourself, you are unwilling to treat people, not you don't treat, you, you, you're unwilling to treat people as humans with dignity, worth, and value equal to you in the eyes of God. And so you, you work in your caste system. You take your wealth to yourself, uncaring of how others live, gets evil gain for his house, sets his nest on high. Literally, this would be kind of living on a mountainside, taking his home, making it very nice. He says this, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. So you'd find shame for your house by cutting off many people. That you have lived in great wealth while others don't eat, don't have, which shows in the end a lack of compassion kindness and care for others because again you see people as lower you push you you see them down you don't see them equally and so you justify in your own hand you have devised shame for your house you have cut off many and there's a strong statement he says the stones and the beams when you look at them they will cry out your shame literally when you look at the walls of your house and the beams you feel the condemnation of how you have gotten to where you have gotten. Those whose wealth is built by evil means, by systematic oppression of others, your very walls and beams will be a visual reminder of your wickedness. Third, woe to the slave master. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Bloodshed through murder, captivity, and bloodshed through slavery. And this is really the idea of this text. So the Babylonians come in, they take up a town, they enslave men and women, and this is how they build things up. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Literally, the town is built on bloodshed because if the man or woman doesn't do what they're told, they die. 
and they put another person in their place to lay the brick because people are machines, they are not people. The foundations of the city, they're built on it. They're built on sin, not on glory, not on honor. He says, 13, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and the nations weary themselves for nothing? What he's saying is this is not from the Lord of hosts. I denounce this kind of activity and this kind of behavior. I do not condone it. It is not a way in which will go unlooked and unpunished by me. Their destruction will end, and in the end, they will fail and receive judgment. And so then he says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And I believe that the Lord puts this in here. I believe that this text, in the midst of this kind of, the, the greatest way in which someone can be treated and degre- degre- uh, degraded is by enslaving them. And so I believe that in the text of this, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the seas, says there is a ruler of all and no matter your strength, no matter, um, no man's glory will eclipse his. His glory will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. So the principle of this, woe to the slave master, is those who take others captive for their, for the, for their own labor in any form God condemns and clearly states judgment for them and gives hope of his eternal plan and invitation to join him for the oppressed. Fourth woe. Woe to the irresponsible leader. Woe to the irresponsible leader. He says, woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Meaning that their corruption led their own evil appetites. All they did was for their own pleasure. And their own pleasure led them to getting men and women drunk and raping them. Their appetites were so corrupted that everything they did was for their own pleasure. The word would be hedonism. And what hedonism leads to is fulfilling all that I want and desire in everyone in this world, everyone in this world is clearly only here for one reason, to fill and fulfill my appetites. So the response, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision, your, your, your ungodliness, The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Instead of glory, when you die, you will receive shame and judgment forever because you did not have the weight of glory upon your life. Woe to the irresponsible leader continues in verse 17. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as well as the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and the violence of earth to the cities of all who dwell in them. So, the point. Woe to the irresponsible leader. Irresponsibility and degradation. Power wielded for pleasure and the destruction of the deepest and most intimate level of humanity. God denounces in this text. And so for the, the, the leader who sees themselves higher and others lower and uses their position to coerce and to force people to do things that they do not desire, that dehumanize them, God in this text says he condemns as wrong and ungodly and nothing to do with him. And then the fifth woe. Woe to the idolater. Woe to the idolater. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for, it, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. What he's saying is your, your idols, which the Babylonian Empire had many, many idols. He says your idols, they have no power. They are nothing, and you will gain nothing by them. 
You can prop up idols. You can put your faith in something, but it will be empty. It will be pointless, and it will not come through for you. And it continues, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. Now, an idol, an idol is anything held as an ultimate hope. An idol is anything held as an ultimate hope. So an idol doesn't have to be a wooden image. It doesn't have to be something I put on the front doorpost of my house. It, it doesn't have to be something made by hands. It's the thing in which I place my hope in. And so I can put my hope in a relationship. I can put my hope in my children. I can put my hope in my life, my wealth, and all these different things that surround me. But none of those things will speak and none of those things will come through. Only God is made to place that part of our life. So it says, it continues, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Meaning God is well and he is above all. Bow in reverence and honor before the king. I'm going to introduce a new principle to your life. Maybe it'll help you. I think we need it. I'm just going to call it the shh principle. What if before we started talking about this family and how they raise their kids, we just had a minute where we went shh. The Lord is on his throne. What if before we had a cup of coffee talking politics, we just said, shh. I think it would change the tone and the way in which we say things. Because let's be honest, how often before we open our mouths do we recognize that there's a God on high who's hearing what we are saying. It'd change things, wouldn't it? Shh. Sometimes, including myself, we just need to shut up. Yeah, I just said that, somebody that doesn't let their kids say it. Like I, sometimes we need to just, we need to stop talking so we don't sin. And see, in this text, what does it say? Again, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. See, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess our God. And I believe that one of the greatest things we have to come to resolve is this simple statement that Jesus is Lord. That God is on high. This challenges us. I, I'm not sure how much we think about lordship. That I have a God above me who I've committed my life to, and now his ways and the rest of my life after I came to know him, it's about me getting on board with him, not him getting on board with me, which causes many of these woes to be indifference to us because we don't think we need to get on the same page with God and care about what God cares about. So we go about living our life the way we want to, building up a little bit of wealth, not a ton of wealth, but just enough and we justify it and we say this and we say that without taking some statements really seriously. His lordship matters. See, I'll help you bring this home a little bit. So, anybody ever watch The Wizard of Oz? You ever see The Wizard of Oz? Yeah, it's great. So, my family and I, we decided this year that we were going to dress up for Halloween as the Wizard of Oz, and so we found somewhere indoors to go yesterday because it's pretty much going to be raining all day today, I believe. And so we went, and we were all dressed up. I was the, uh, the Wizard of Oz. I have a top hat and a bow tie and a suit, so it's not a very good costume. And then uh, and, uh, my wife is the Ten Woman, which we, we diverted a little bit because of the feminine nature of our home. And... Uh, uh, and we have a lion, a little, little lion. We got a, we got a straw girl. And then we have, yeah, it's really cute. And then we have Glinda, the good witch. Um, we didn't do any bad witches in our house. And so, um, so this, is, this is it. And so I don't know if you remember, the end, of, the end of the movie, Dorothy comes to an epiphany. She is about, it's kind of this bad bubble that when Glinda comes back down on, right? 
And she comes down and she says, Dorothy, you've been able to go home the whole time. She's like, I didn't know. She goes, but you had to learn some lessons before you were ready. She goes, well, you know, and so she guides her through this lesson. And the lesson that Dorothy had to learn, I don't know if you remember this, but everything she needs is at home. That was her lesson. And I believe for us, when we think of Jesus as Lord, everything we need is at home. Everything I need in life is from God. The righteous shall live by faith. Living by faith means that when the torrent of our society is spinning, I can have peace because I have a God who endures all things forever. And I believe no matter what comes, he will care for me and take care of me. What it means is everything I need is in God. My fear and my anger and my resentment and my, 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 my frustrations get me nowhere. But there's a peace to be found in a world that is spinning simply in God. So, say things like, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the, all the earth keep silence before him. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. You can say things like, Behold, the soul is, his soul is puffed up and is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. So, what's our response? What do we respond? How do we respond to these five woes? Well, there's a passage, Psalm 11.7 says this, For the Lord is the righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Say it again. For the Lord is the righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. I believe that as much as there's woes in this text, I believe to every woe there's a responsibility of righteousness. There's a way in which God cares that we ought to care that we ought to live. And I believe that God loves it when we engage in righteousness with our lives. Righteous living, righteous deeds. Ephesians 2 calls it good works. We are not saved by them, but inevitably Christians will live them out if you have truly been changed by the power of Jesus. So the first response be for those trapped in systematic cycles of poverty. Be for those trapped in systematic cycles of poverty. So to speak to this, there are those in our society that are marginalized. It's sort of an interesting thing to even say in this room because for us in North Canton, Ohio, this kind of point comes to us, but I believe that if I was preaching this same passage in Guatemala, my response might be, God sees you in your oppression and he cares for you. It, it, it wouldn't be, be for those trapped in systematic cycles of poverty because most of the people in Guatemala have been trapped in systematic cycles of poverty. The reason we can pay $3 for a pineapple is because some people have made it sure that they only cost a quarter in Guatemala. So anyway, I won't get into geopolitics, but there is something to be said for these things. There's more going on in our world than we know. And so in this, in our own society, there are those that live in places where a loaf of bread at a local store in which they can walk to costs $5 but I can drive to and get for 99 cents. And there's ways in which systematic oppression in society has happened from generation to generations, even in the ways in which we think and which we behave. A few years ago, Deb and I had become foster parents. We had our first foster son in our house, Marcus, and Marcus was my first son, um, only son, loved that boy. Like, he, he was the first kid in our house. We had him for six months. We thought we were going to adopt him, and all... All of a sudden, Bridget, his aunt, came along, and she said that she wanted to take him. And so Bridget took Marcus and began to raise Marcus. And we continued a relationship with Bridget. And Bridget was living in substandard housing, and she was living very kind of marginalized for life. But she'd been really good. I mean, she'd done incredible with her life. She'd raised her daughters on her own. She was noble and wanted to take Marcus in. And, and she, she, was, she's, she was, she is a fantastic 
person. I've met few people like Bridget in my life. But all of a sudden, Bridget had a tumor. And that tumor was about 18 pounds that she had removed. She lost her job. She lost her health care. And she had no way of providing. When we go to her house, she would be sitting on the couch in pain. Her daughters were coming around to help raise markets the best he, he, uh, they could. We were helping along. He'd come stay with us some, and we were walking along. We, we felt like God told us to pay her rent. We didn't know how much her rent cost. We didn't have very much money at that point in time, so we did what any good young couple does. We called our mom and dad, and we said, hey, could you help us help them? And so we didn't, we literally didn't know a dollar amount. They asked, and we just said, just give something. And so, you know, they gave a couple hundred dollars. And so we went in. I went into the office, and I said, the housing office, and I said, we want to pay um, Bridget's rent. And they said, well, we can't give out that information. And I said, well, if you ever want this money, you probably should, because she's not going to be able to pay, and I have my checkbook right here. And so she says, okay, right. So she showed it to us, showed it to me. And so I sat down, and they said, well, the number is pretty big. I said, we, we're going to pay it. And so they told me the number. It was really big. <laughs> it was way more than I intended. It pretty much wiped out our savings, and we signed the check. Gave me a bill. Gave me, gave me the slip the, of the payment. And so I went up to Bridget's apartment and knocked on the door. It took her a while to get to the door. She was really sick and hurting. And I handed her, uh, <clears throat> I handed her that slip, and she, she began to cry uncontrollably. And she said, who are you people? Why do you care? Why do you do this? Why do you take care of Marcus? Why do you take care of us? Who are you? Now, I'm not up here saying like every good, I'm not like a guy who has a million good deeds in his life. I know that was really good and a righteous act. And I believe it was out of obedience to God simply. They will know. They will know who we are by our love. And when we don't care, we don't love. And we don't love because we don't know. We don't have relationships in places I believe God clearly wants us to have relationships. We need to be for those trapped in systematic cycles of poverty. Second, we need to be faithful with excessive wealth. Wealth. We need to be faithful with excessive wealth. So I can pretty clearly say this. If you are, if you've had, if you've ever, raise your hand if you've ever had $10 in your pocket. Just raise your hand quick. All right, you're already in the top 20% of wealth in the entire world. Um, and so there, there's that. If you, if you make over $50,000 a year or combined income of $50,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of wealth in the world. And so there's an excessive wealth that we have the privilege of having in our world, right? I don't know if you knew those stats. There's a, you can go online, global rich list, and uh, it kind of does that. I don't know how accurate it is, but it seems to be true. And so, so you go on this. So, so all of us in this room have a, a level of excessive wealth. I remember a few years ago, a missions pastor who I had worked alongside of, there was, a, there was a guy, and he shared this story with me. There was a guy who'd went on a mission trip with him, and he um, never paid for any of it. And he owed $3,000 to the church, and he wasn't, he wasn't paying it. And um, <clears throat> he had a meeting with him. He goes, yeah, I'm going to get it. And it was like a year or two years later, and the guy hadn't paid back the money. The mission pastor finally said to him, he goes, man, like, you've, you've literally stolen from God. Like, you, you committed to this. Like, as a pastor, I want to help you, like, just be right with God in this one area of your life. And he goes, Pastor, I don't have any money to pay for it. And he goes, not true. You got a brand new boat. I saw it on Facebook. Sell the boat. <clears throat> Many times we don't give because we've strapped ourselves down with so much stuff that we don't have the capacity to give to that which matters. I believe I'm in a room of people that believe the kingdom of God matters. That the moving forward of the gospel matters in this world. I am confident that the scripture calls us as the people of God to give a minimum of 10% tithe plus, and I believe in the New Testament you could even say excessively beyond that. And I don't even believe that necessarily. I believe in proportionally, like what can I live on and what can I put toward the God's kingdom and his work? And I, I just ask you the question of, what do your rafters say to you? 
what does your excess say to you? And I'm not poking or judging anybody. That's to each man in and of himself to respond to God with. But we must be faithful with our excessive wealth, undoubtedly. And I say that not on my own authority, but on the authority of God's word. Third, be for those trapped in slavery. Be for those trapped in slavery. Slavery, there has never been more slaves in the world than there is right now today in history. Now, you have maybe the privilege or not the privilege to have a pastor that has greatly traveled globally in mission work. I have been to slave plantations in the middle of Brazil where I had to drive an hour and a half to a sugarcane plantation where there was men and women who lived in a giant town and the slave owner controlled the grocery store. They had to pay for the gas and the truck that got them out there and they pay for their rent every week and guess where it puts them? It puts them in the hole and they never can catch up and they're perpetually trapped where they are. This is a common old form of slavery in North America. It's called indentured servitude. It happens all over the world. It happens all over pizza joints in New York. It happens all over our cities. It happens right here in Canton, Ohio. It happens in in Akron and Cleveland and Toledo. It happens all over our nation. We had people on the stage last week, human trafficking. It's, it is it is one of the most profitable industries in the world. So just get women being sold for sex is one of the most profitable industries in the world. Now, I don't know about you, but this dude right here, dad of four girls, and you've heard me say this before, but for some reason, like, I had a four-year-old pushed at me in a village in Thailand that I could purchase her for 70 cents. It troubles me. It's real, and we should care about it. And it's easier for us to kind of isolate our lives and say, that's not, that's not real. It is real, and God hates it. And we ought to, too, and we should care. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to go jump the bandwagon and jump into that, because that is a dark world. But what we can do is we can give, we can mentor, we can engage, we can pray. There's lots of ways to get into these things. I would say prayer isn't just something that we say we could just do. I believe it's one of the most important things that we do. Fourth, you can be a responsible leader who treats others with dignity. I believe as a people of God that when people work, if you have employees, they might and hopefully could say, I have never had a better boss who treated me with more dignity and kindness than my boss today. That we don't treat people like machines. We don't see ourselves better than people as a caste system, but we treat them with honor and dignity, whoever is in front of us every day of our life. Many of you sit here today in in ways in which you, you, you resonate because you have never been treated with dignity or you have been in a job where you were treated terribly and you know the pain of that. And some of you, you treat others poorly. But the problem is we typically don't see it when we are it. Sometimes asking ourselves these deeper questions of who am I really and how do I treat others as a leader? And then the fifth and last, be a worshiper of God alone. Be a worshiper of God alone making a commitment of saying that I believe that the Lord is in his holy temple and that the earth will keep silence before him. I choose with my life, not just in my song on a Sunday morning, but with my life to be a worshiper of God alone, the worshiper of the God of the universe. So might we, in response to this, lay aside self-righteousness, Might we lay aside self-righteousness, imposing on others that which we excel in? Might might we lay aside self-promoting, right? Might we we lay aside like our, our, our puffing of ourselves up, of flexing of our own muscles? And might we humble ourselves and promote our God and his kingdom in this world? And might we, as a response, Stop our self-loathing or our self-loving and catch a glimpse of our amazing and good God in heaven 
God, God loves us and God loves people. And God has a plan which is unfolding in this world. And when he is our Lord, he sets the plan. We don't. So I believe today, in many ways, God is calling each of us in unique ways to get on board with his plan. The question is, what is it? And what are you going to do about it? Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you are a God full of justice. God, that the, the evils of this world, you loathe in a way that we could only long to disregard them and push them away. Lord, shape our hearts to your heart. Shape our love and our compassion and our kindness. Lord, we, we thank you that, that not only do you love the oppressor, the oppressed, God, but, but you love the oppressor. Lord, we even see it with the Apostle Paul, that you took a man violent against your church and your people, and you redeemed him and made him whole. But Lord, you truly love all people. So Lord, we, we simply just come before you today and ask you to help us to respond appropriately with our lives. Help us not disregard your word, but hold it firmly and tight. Help us to live righteous and holy lives in this present day. And help us to respond appropriately to what you've said. To the person who's never received you, Lord, I pray you'd give them the strength to repent of their sins and turn in faith to you, good and holy God. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. We thank you that he bore our wrath, that he bore our shame, and he bore our guilt, that you, God, made us alive in you, that you are recreating us, that you've invited us into this great plan of yours, of the restoration of all things. Lord, help us to get on board with you. Help us to lay ourselves aside. Help us do so as we respond in song. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand this morning, we're going to sing this last song. As we sing this song, if in any way the Lord has spoken to you, maybe you can deal with it right here at the altar through commitment, right where you are, and committing the things that he has said to you today. Let's sing together.